This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. I still have bad dreams about that stormy night we went out there. Not about the woman so much as the little girl, and the way she smiled when she held up her arms so I could pick her up, so she could give me a kiss. But I'm an old man, and the time comes soon when dreams are done. You may have occasion to be traveling in southern Maine yourself one of these days. Pretty part of the countryside. You may even stop by Tukey's Bar for a drink. Nice place. They kept the name just the same. So have your drink, and then my advice to you is keep right on moving north. Whatever you do, don't go up that road to Jerusalem's lot. Especially not after dark. There's a little girl somewhere out there, and I think she's still waiting for her goodnight kiss. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, and today I'm continuing the look back of all the Stephen King works in print with One for the Road, a short story sequel to King's novel Salem's Lot. Now, if this is your first time joining us at Books and Nachos, welcome for the Stephen King review series. This is the third review I've done of Stephen King's work, and the first on a short story. In the archives at Books and Nachos, you can hear my review of King's novels, Carrie and Salem's Lot, the first two books King published. And as I mentioned in the Carrie review, I'm going primarily in order of publication, reading King's books as now playing reviews all the King movie adaptations. But every so often, I'm going to be a bit looser with my ordering, and this is one of those cases. If I was going strictly by book publication date, then today I'd be reviewing The Shining, for after Salem's Lot in 1975, the next book King published was The Shining in 1977. But today, I'm looking at one of the short stories from King's 1978 short story collection, Night Shift. Truthfully, One for the Road was first published in the March-April 1977 edition of Maine Magazine, but I don't dare to try and follow King's short story publication order, or we'd not even have yet gotten to carry, as King had several stories published in the 60s and early 70s. But in that 1978 anthology, King had two short stories tied directly to his best-selling vampire tale, One for the Road and Jerusalem's Lot, which I'll be reviewing next week on Books and Nachos. In 2005, these two short stories were reprinted again, this time in the limited 30th anniversary editions of Salem's Lot released by Centipede Press. And the following year, the short stories were added to the ebook and paperback editions of King's vampire novel. In these re-released Salem's Lot books, the stories were presented in the order King wrote them, or at least the order in which they were printed for mass publication, with One for the Road coming first and Jerusalem's Lot next. This is a reversal of the order they appeared in Night Shift, but as that appears to be the current order in which they're meant to be read, it's also the order in which I'll review them. And, as this is a short story, this will also be a much shorter Books and Nachos review, which I suspect may be as welcome for you, the constant listener, as it is for me. One for the Road is described as a sequel to Salem's Lot, and that was all I knew as I went in to read the story. When reading Salem's Lot, I speculated greatly as to what storylines King may pick up in the story. Would we find out more about the final fates of Ben Mears and Mark Petrie, the two surviving heroes of Salem's Lot? Would the satanic aspects of Vampire Barlow's master be revealed? Or maybe, just maybe, we'd find out what happened to Father Callahan after he got on that bus. But I was wrong on all counts. 
though this short story does take place in and about Salem's Lot after the events of King's novel, there are no returning characters, alive or undead, in One for the Road. The story takes place two years after the ancient vampire Barlow and his human familiar Straker set loose the vampire plague on Jerusalem's Lot. And here, King tells us of the events that happened once Barlow was staked and Mark and Ben fled to Los Zapatos, Mexico. Unaware of the dangers in the town, several people tried to move into Salem's Lot, but they would either move out shortly thereafter or disappear forever. Events Ben would read about in the newspapers he had delivered to him in Mexico, and what would prompt him and Mark to return to Jerusalem's Lot. In that novel's final pages, the two went to the Marsden house and set a fire that would engulf the entire town, purifying it and theoretically ridding it of vampires. But as we read in One for the Road, the fire they begin blazed for three days, and when it died down, the troubles in Salem's Lot seemed to be cured for a time. Mark and Ben left Salem's Lot thinking they'd been victorious, but with this short story, King would rob them of their victory and make us realize the vampires were too widespread to be annihilated so easily. A while after the fire, the disappearances of those who traveled to Salem's Lot began again. This time, there were no vampire hunters to try to stop them, so the locals and the surrounding community just turned a blind eye to the problem. But in that area of Maine, from Falmouth to Cumberland, the locals knew to stay the hell out of Salem's Lot. But try telling that to a rich, dumb tourist from New Jersey. For that is the plot of One for the Road. Gerald Lumley, a man with more dollars than cents, was driving his family from New Jersey to Cumberland, Maine to visit his wife's sister. Being a thick-headed city boy unfamiliar with a Maine nor'easter, he tried to drive through this January snowstorm. Not knowing Salem's lot to be deserted and unplowed, he took those roads and his Mercedes got stuck in a snowdrift. He leaves his wife and daughter in the car, engine running to keep them warm, while he walks six miles in the bitter cold to look for help. He finally stumbles across Tukey's Bar in Falmouth. Due to the storm, the bar is mostly deserted and starting to close up. Only Herb Tuklander, the bar's owner, and his friend Booth remain. Lumley tells his story, and Tukey and Booth have to decide if they're going to try to help this man rescue his wife and daughter, even if it means facing the terrors that lie within Salem's lot. The old-timer's good nature wins out, and the three men leave the bar. But not all three will return. Compared to the massive, sprawling narrative that was Salem's Lot with its 200 named characters, this story isn't just short, it's downright fleeting. Only 17 pages long with three characters, it's a perfectly self-contained narrative. You don't need to have read King's 674-page novel to enjoy this story of a winter storm on a January night where there just might be vampires afoot. In fact, it's a perfect sort of tie-in for marketing. If you read this, you may be more interested to go back and read the Salem's Lot novel. Likewise, if you read Salem's Lot, you may be more likely to seek out Maine Magazine or, later, the Night Shift book to find out how King continued the story of the town. But neither is required reading for enjoyment of the other. In fact, I dare say those who read both Salem's Lot and One for the Road, as I have, might notice all the continuity errors between the stories. In the novel Salem's Lot, the change from human to vampire is a slow one. It takes several days and multiple feedings to turn a human into one of the undead. In One for the Road, the transformation occurs much more quickly. Also in the novel, there was a major plot point that once killed, the vampire bite marks disappear from a body. But in One for the Road, those wounds are in plain view to help identify someone as Nosferatu. Even the timeline is a bit strained, as at one point in the short story, it said that the fire in Jerusalem's lot was three years earlier, 
which would put this short story in 79. Yet later it's said the town went dead two years earlier and then the fire after that, which places this story in the publication year of 1977. So yes, there are continuity errors, but they can all be forgiven, for One for the Road is told from the point of view of an unreliable narrator. While Salem's Lot was mostly writ in the standard third-person format, with brief excursions into second-person, One for the Road is an entirely first-person story told from the point of view of Booth. Booth is an old man, a widower, and telling this story from which he obviously survived. Given his age, and given that the tale is told in a conversational way, as one would over beers, it's forgivable if the old-timer gets a few dates wrong, misremembers some facts, and perhaps even embellishes the story a bit. After all, the vampire stories are told by many in these small main towns, and like fish stories among the gamesmen, there is a tendency for one-upsmanship. The old-timer even diverts to another story of a man who felt brave enough to spend a night in the lot and never returned. Such stories are abundant, so we'll let Booth have his discrepancies in this one. This first-person narration is really a strength of One for the Road. More than either of his previous works, this short story is unabashedly a story about Maine told by someone who's lived in Maine for a very long life. As I mentioned in my review of Salem's Lot, I have a lot of family in Maine, and I spent quite a bit of time there in my childhood. But more recently, in the late 1990s, I went to Maine in January. Something no one in their right mind would do. Just as Lumley shouldn't have driven to the Pine Tree State in this story, I was foolish to fly to Maine in January, but I had to attend my sister's wedding. And on that trip, I encountered weather like I would never forget. Snow that pelted your body like shrapnel and a bitter wind chill of negative 40 degrees that threatened frostbite in the mere seconds it took to walk from my hotel to my rented car. And like Lumley, my brother-in-law's car got stuck in a snowdrift, his wife and children in the car, and, like a younger version of Booth, I found myself stupidly going out in the cold and bitter wind to help push out the car. I was taken back to that trip to Maine by this story, where King writes of this nor'easter, the snow coming down, the cold winds that give Lumley frostbite that kills his fingers and toes on a six-mile hike to Toomey's Bar. King's depiction of that snowstorm is in many ways as frightening as the vampires themselves in the story. If for no other reason than the weather, One for the Road is worth a read as a cautionary tale against any who would dare brave the extreme northeastern weather. Also, this first-person storytelling presents an unabashedly main viewpoint. You see it in the way Booth feels about this tourist from New Jersey, with coat and gloves worn more for fashion than for survival, his expensive luxury car stupidly unprepared for the weather. It's an attitude I know well from my uncles, who could be telling this story just as easily as Booth could. I mentioned in my review of Salem's Lot the strange and, in my experience, unique attitude of Maine natives, and I really enjoyed seeing that here through the eyes of Booth. Also, this first-person narration really evokes a style in King's writing. Salem's Lot was strongly inspired by Bram Stoker's Dracula, but this follow-up story seems to be a work heavily influenced by Edgar Allan Poe. Poe often wrote in the first person, such as The Telltale Heart or The Cask of Amontillado, and so many others, and Poe was famous for employing the unreliable narrator convention in such stories. King's story is not as complex, so there is less reason to doubt Booth's tale. You could take it completely as fact. You could take it as a truth with a few facts wrong. Or it could be a story entirely made up by a lonely widower who wants nothing but someone to listen to his stories now that his last friend is dead. But while the writing is Poe, 
The story itself harkens back in my mind more to EC Comics and the other horror comics of the 50s and 60s. While it may lack a twist ending of The Twilight Zone or many of these stories like King would write for Creepshow, I could close my eyes and easily envision the story in four colors. The two men at the otherwise deserted bar, the city man bursting in with his tail, the fear in the oldsters' faces despite the man's seemingly rational disbelief in vampires, and the horrors that would await them out in the snow. King has often cited his love for horror comics in interviews, and I think those, as much as Poe, influenced One for the Road. The tale even helps drive home a nihilism that dominated King's views in his 70s work. When he envisioned Salem's Lot, and The Shining for that matter, King pictured a story in which everyone dies at the end, as most characters did in Carrie. Despite King changing his mind while writing Salem's Lot and deciding Ben and Mark and a few others would be smart enough to survive, this story shows us the evil was not defeated. You can smack down the power of the black, but it will always rise again to come back and kill. Thematically, the story is also a tale about men who've lost their wives. Booth's wife died in 1973, Tukey's in 1974, and the two men had found friendship in each other with their lonely homes, spending many late nights talking over drinks Tukey would serve. But in comes a third man who's lost his wife, quite literally, out in the main snow. Can Booth and Tukey help Lumley save his wife? Will Lumley become a third widower at the Lonely Heart Club bar? Or will all three men die in the night? It's a subtext to the story, but it's too consistent to be accidental. That also helps tie back to Ben Mears in Salem's Lot, who had his wife die in 1973 before he came to the lot, and then his lover be killed by the town's vampires. So for a very short story that can easily be read in one sitting, there's a lot to enjoy in One for the Road. At this length, it contains none of the complexity and dense plotting that I would expect from King, but as the first short story I'm reviewing from Night Shift, it really makes me look forward to the other stories and seeing King work more on this smaller stage with tight, contained, bite-sized stories. One for the Road has seen other adaptations for the year. There's an audiobook version read by Smallville's John Glover as part of the Night Shift series. The full text was also reproduced in an individually published book called One for the Road, an Illustrated Story. Now out of print, this book originally sold for $130, or an edition signed by the artist, not by King, for $280. Now the unsigned version goes for over $200 on the secondary market. It contains King's original prose on the right-hand pages of the book, and on the left is a full-color illustration by artist James Hanna depicting the events of the story. Being so high-priced and only 35 pages long with no new text, I didn't get a copy of this collectible for review. But I did see some of the art online, and it is certainly a curiosity, with a format that makes it look like the world's most ghastly children's book. The story was also reprinted in another illustrated form in 2010 by Cemetery Dance Publications in a book called The Secretary of Dreams, Volume 2. The Secretary of Dreams series collect a handful of King short stories and interweave prose with new artwork. Here, One for the Road is again reprinted, but incorporated into new black-and-white illustrations by artist Glenn Chadbourne. Cemetery Dance does a lot of King Limited editions, and while they were expensive, I do own both of these books. So this version of One for the Road I was able to read. The prose is the same, but it's a unique mashup of the images and the text, which make it feel like part prose and part comic book. The black-and-white art didn't come close to resembling my own mental image of these characters, but it certainly meshed with the EC Comics feel King gave this story. 
It was unnecessary, but if you're looking to reread the story and can get a copy of Secretary of Dreams Volume 2, it does provide a new reading experience. And One for the Road continues on. The story was sold as a dollar baby, which is what King calls stories he sells for one dollar to student filmmakers. Director Michael Floyd has filmed One for the Road and shown it at the Dollar Baby Festival in 2010. It's been in post-production for the past three years, but an updated trailer for this short film was posted online in 2012, and so someday this film may be available in its entirety. Perhaps it's the poor, upbeat musical number the trailer set to, but for me, I think it looks a bit cheap and poorly done, so I think I'll skip it and just keep the King's original text for my enjoyment. But now, I'm gonna hit the road. I'll be back next week to review the third and final Salem's Lot story, Jerusalem's Lot. In the meantime, you can head to NowPlayingPodcast.com, where we're reviewing a totally different type of Salem's Lot sequel, Return to Salem's Lot. And no, it is not based at all on One for the Road. In the meantime, I'd like your thoughts. What do you think of King's shorter fiction, and of these reviews? You can email me your thoughts at arnie at booksandnachos.com, or come to the Books and Nachos forums to discuss this review and this story with other listeners. The link can be found from our website at booksandnachos.com. I'll talk to you next week from Jerusalem's Lot. And in the meantime, please remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved.